0: If you have got your Bibles with you, take them and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now, one of the most influential uh, moments in my life, and I've told you this over the last uh, 10 years a couple of times, the most influential moments in my life uh, happened in the January 1st, 1997. Uh, I was a part of a group of people from Union University. And uh, we traveled from Union to Austin, Texas for a conference that I wanted to go to because of a band that was there that was going to play a concert. I did not know then, and I don't think anybody in that room knew then, the impact that that three days would have on my life, on the life of the church. And when I say the church, I mean the international church. That gathering was called Passion 97, and it happened with 2,500 College students in Austin, Texas, in a ballroom of a hotel. Now, I remember vividly what happened there, the speakers that were there. I just discovered a couple of years ago that one of the speakers that radically transformed through God's message in my life had a history and a part of being in this church, a guy named Dave Busby. He spoke, and I can tell you half of his message verbatim. Okay? Did not know till a couple of years ago the connection here. Talked to Ms. Ruth many times, not knowing. Like one of the things I regret is not to be able to say to her, your son radically changed my life. That group of 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 college students, we were, the, we were at Union the group of people that had traveled the farthest to come. If you fast forward to 20 years later to last January 1st, there were 55,000 college students in the Georgia Dome in Atlanta for Passion 2017. Now, three years after they started this thing, I was there in 97, 98, and then I was living in Fort Worth, Texas in 99, going to seminary, and they came to Fort Worth to do it, so we went in 99. I wasn't even invited anymore because I wasn't a college student anymore, but I went. In the year 2000, they... Gathered at Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee for a one-day gathering, trying to get as many. They called it the College Christian Woodstock. And they did one day of singing and preaching with thousands of college students there. One of the strangest people to speak at this conference has always been a guy named John Piper who was old when he first started speaking at the 97 conference. And is still speaking. He spoke at this year's conference. And he is not what you would imagine. And that's the guy college students want to listen to. At the one that happened the one day in Memphis, Shelby Farms, there was a deluge of rain that came just hours before it was going to happen and they seriously had to consider doing away with it. One of the founders says that they got together and he remembers a pastor there praying the boldest prayer he's ever heard to tell God to turn the faucet off. And it did just in time. And as this guy, John Piper, stood before thousands of college students outdoor, he had a profound message. Now, we're not going to play the whole message, but I do want to play you from that day about a two-minute clip. Here's what he said.
1: I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest. I know that. But there is a generation who Does this is a tragedy title of the article start now retire early February 1998 Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was fifty nine and she was fifty one. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it and I get 40 minutes to plead with you don't buy it with all my heart I plead with you don't buy that dream the American dream a nice house a nice car a nice job a nice family a nice retirement Collecting shells. As the last chapter, before you stand before the Creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God, is positioned,
0: it tells you the time. And you have to calculate it based on where you are and the direction you're pointing it. There's lots of mathematical formulas and all that that go into it. But when people had a sundial and that was it to tell time, they just had to kind of guess or know that it was generally this time. One of the most fascinating things to me about sundials is many of them have inscriptions or mottos on them. And I think that some of the mottos are good for us to look back upon and to ask the question, do we live our lives even when we know the time as retrospectively as we should with that knowledge? Listen to some of these mottos. Be gone about thy business. So you go look at a sundial to see what time it is, and it tells you to get to work. Time. This will cheer you up this morning. Y'all ready to be cheered up? Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Okay, maybe that's not too cheerful, alright? Today is yesterday's tomorrow. Make haste, but Slowly. Some of you think I'm really good at that, all right? An hour passes slowly, but the years go by quickly. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Time devours all things. In this one, it's later than you think. Right? Reminded me of Psalm 90:12. Where Moses says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Moses says that we must be constantly aware of what time it is in our lives. Because that is the beginning of the way to live live with wisdom. Now think about the concept of revival, not survival. I think about the concept of living wisely. Living as God's called us to live. Living as God has made us to live. And not just making it through life. And when you consider the number of our days, there are some staggering statistics out there. If you say that the average person in America lives to 75, which I know that age is going up, and some of you are already past the average. You're better than average. No amens there. But if you said 75 was how long you were going to live, listen to these statistics, 26 years of your life you will spend sleeping. 26 years of your life you will spend sleeping. Now, you say, but if you spend that well, those 26 years help you live the other ones better. This is kind of depressing. Seven years of your life, you live lying, lying in bed trying to go to sleep. Scientific here. Average American spends 11 years watching TV. Same amount of time, 11 years that you work in your life. That's counting 40 hours a week. I know some work more than that. Some have worked less than than that. 40 hours a week for the time that you're in your working window. Women spend 136 days of their lives getting ready. Men spend 46 days of their lives getting ready, which means women must be much more ready than we are. And this is for my generation, but includes some of yours. That my generation, on average, by the time we get to seventy-five, will have spent five years of our lives surfing the internet, four years of our lives on our phones, and when you, by the way, we probably ought to reconsider what we call those things. Do you know that how you use them for most people now? Making a phone call is six on the list. And when it's the sixth thing you do, it might not be the thing to call it. Teenagers today are spending time sending a hundred texts a day. We spend 1.5 years in the restroom. And that's not counting shower and brushing your teeth. So I'll let you figure out what it is. All right. It's three years doing laundry. Statistics say that the next generation, the one that's my kids' generation, are spending an average of 11 hours today in front of some sort or using some sort of digital media. By the time they're seven, they've spent a year in front of digital media. Teach us, Lord, to number the days of our lives carefully. So that may we develop wisdom in our hearts. It seems to me that one of the things we're doing as a culture, as a society, and as a church is that we are wasting the one commodity we cannot recover. I've heard it said there's only two things they're not making more of. Land and time. We're wasting the commodity of time. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, and then we're going to get in just a second to Philippians 3. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time. What's interesting to me about this passage, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What's interesting to me in Ephesians chapter 5 is when he tells them to live as wise people, the first thing he tells them that will make them live as a wise person is what? I didn't cut anything out. What's the first thing? Making the most of your time. Here's what I want to talk to you today about in Philippians chapter 3. We need to learn not to waste our lives. On things that don't really matter. The question comes: well, why do we spend so much time doing things that don't really matter? Why do we spend so much time wasting our lives? Maybe for you, the temptation is not to be on your phone three hours a day. But perhaps it's doing something else that in the scope of eternity does not matter. So why do we spend time doing that? Four things real quickly. First of all is we don't see the big picture. We're worried about what's next or what just happened. We don't step back and think about the big picture of our lives, the big picture of God's plan, the big picture of eternity. In fact, some of you are sitting here right now and it's just washing over you this sermon because you're just punching a ticket because this is the next thing on your agenda. Sunday morning, I go to church. I just do what's next on my planner. I just do what's next in my schedule. I just do what's next on my ritual. I just do what's next on my routine. And you think I'm going to make it through this hour and I'm going to go to Sunday school. I'm going to make it through that hour. Then going to get some lunch. I'm going to make it through that hour. I got a nap planned this afternoon. I'm going to make it through that hour. And as it comes up in your life, you're just reacting to the next thing or the last thing. And when we do that, we lose a picture of what the big picture is. See, I believe that God wants to raise up men and women in His church, in this church. He wants to raise this church up who our lives count for His glory across the landscape of human history. This is true of churches, it's true of individuals, it's true of businesses, it's true of corporations, it's true of people that just see the next thing. You might remember this store called Blockbuster Video. You might remember that. Right. When's the last time you saw a blockbuster? How many of you ever rented a video from blockbuster video? All right. Did you rewind it? Be kind. Rewind. Anybody do that? When's the last time you saw a blockbuster video? I don't know where one is. I don't know if it exists. You know why? Because they were given the chance. Those little things you see all over the place, the red box. They were given a chance to buy a red box and they said that thing will never take off. You know why? Because they just saw what was in front of them and not what was the big picture. This weekend, part of the thrill for Susan and I, for our family, is that the guy that led worship for us um, for the weekend is named Caleb Jett. Caleb is our nephew. Caleb is uh, Phil's grandson. And he was a guy that in high school was an unbelievable athlete. Quarterback, point guard. On teams that competed for Mississippi Conference, regional, state championships. When he was a senior, he got a shoulder hurt and a particularly bad hit from the blind side. Played basketball that year and had some offers to go and explore what was happening. And he said, God has called me to do something other than sports. Caleb had not, when he I think it was his, when he was a senior in high school, he had never picked up a guitar or Or a piano. He'd never played a piano. He'd never done anything instrumentally in his life. And now, seven years later, eight years later, he is the lead worshiper at one of the fastest growing churches in northern Alabama. And he knew, as he was counting the days of his life, not to just do what was next, but to think about what the big picture was. I want to get real honest with you for a second, church. We're at one of those moments as a church when we have to begin to think, what does the next 5, 10, 15 years look like? And the easy thing would be, listen, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but in pastor years, I've been here like 50. Y'all know that? I mean, I've been here 10, but it's like dog years, right? Okay. Now some of you are like, you've you been here 10 years? I know. It looks like I'm age 20 and it feels like 5, but I've been here 10, alright? And one of the easy things to do when you've had leadership that's been around and there's seemingly pretty good stability and God is continuing to grow. We see young families coming and be a part. We see some guests in this service, people that are here that are visiting. You see good things happening. The easy thing to do is just see what's next in front of you and just keep walking through that. The hard thing to do is say, God, what's the big picture for 10 years? I don't know whether you know this or not, but the area around this church is going to change drastically in 10 years. It's already changed and is changing and will change. And by area around this church, when we talk about our... uh, I was talking to Jeff the other day, and we have... Just think about this for a minute. We have about 60 to 70 kids on a normal Wednesday night that are actively involved in our youth group. We have 18 schools represented in those 60 or 70 kids. So when you talk about First Baptist Goodlettsville, we are much broader than Goodlettsville. We reach Hendersonville and Greenbrier and Ridgetop. We have people driving from Mount Julian and Bellevue. Now, not a lot. It's not like we got 100 people coming from there. But we have to think about what does is, what is 15 years from here look like? God impressed upon me last fall in the midst of a conference that wasn't anything about this. He said, your 10-year anniversary is coming up next year about this time. He said, between now and then, I just felt it stirring in my heart. He said, I want you to think about the next 15 for First Baptist I want to tell you that there are some steps that are taken, some things that are happening behind the scenes, some things our leadership is looking at, trying to figure that out. But the biggest mistake we could say is let's just keep doing what we're doing because it's the next step in front of us. That's true in your life. Think about your schedule tomorrow. Why are you doing what you're doing tomorrow? And if you're honest, a lot of us, me included, it's because it's the next thing on my calendar. Well, why? You ever been around a a four-year-old that wants to know why on everything? Sometimes I think it'd be good if we'd take the why question to our lives. Our schedule, our finances, our commitments, and just say why. Which leads me to the second thing. We're so busy and we're wasting our lives, not because we don't see the big picture only, but because we give our lives to good distractions. What I mean by that, there are things that are out there good. Not necessarily evil. They're, they're not evil. They're not bad. But they're just things that take our lives over. They're distractions to our big picture. They're distractions to our one thing. They're distractions to what God's called us to. And we fix our lives and we fix our mind and we fix our attention on that. And it becomes consuming. A hobby. Our family. A job. A career. Sport, the things that could be good, but they distract us from the big. Third thing, this is straightforward here, we're selfish. Anybody ever known somebody that was selfish? Like yourself, right? We are selfish people. We like to determine how we spend our time, how we do what we do, how we spend our money, where we go. We want to enjoy life for ourselves. We think about what makes us happy, what gets us fulfillment. Think about what looks good to us. And then lastly, we buy the lie you don't have enough time. We got the same amount of time that everybody that's ever existed has had. And a day is the same amount. Whether you count it by sundial or Apple Watch, it's the same 24 hours. Philippians chapter three, starting in verse one. Again, I believe this teaches us that God wants to raise up men and women in his church whose lives count for his glory on the landscape of human history. And we're going to read the all of Philippians three, one through fourteen, and then we're going to come down back and break it down um, where we need to to look at a couple of things, all right? Philippians chapter three, starting in verse one. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, if you look at it in a lot of translations, that in addition is a different word. Finally. You know what's funny about that? Is that he's got half the book left. I know you only have a preacher that said, and in conclusion, and preaches for 20 more minutes. Finally, Paul says, and then half the book is still to come. My brothers and sisters, rejoice in The Lord. Now, quick history lesson. You know this. Many of you have been in church. You've been in Sunday school. Where is Paul when he is writing this letter to the Philippians? He's in prison. Probably chained to a guard, writing this letter with a hand that is not chained. Or with a foot that is not chained opposite. He is writing this letter. And he says, rejoice. Rejoice. Now we've said this before, this is free, this isn't a part of the sermon, but it's just truth you need to hear. There is no reason in your life ever to live a life of constant complaint. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, who has been saved by His grace, that has faith in what He has done for you, in you, and will do, there is no excuse to live a life of constant complaint. Paul is chained... In prison and says, rejoice. And he says, look at this, to write to you again about this. He said, I'm writing to you this again. I know I've told you this already. I'm telling you it again. I have no trouble for me because I'm not struggling with this. He's writing them. They're concerned about him. They're worried about him. He says, listen, I'm good. I'm rejoicing. Even though I'm in prison, I'm rejoicing. It's a safeguard for you. And then he's going to turn his attention to warn them about some people. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if you know biblical history at all, you know that there were these group of people that would often come in behind Paul that were called the Judaizers. And they would walk in behind Paul and they would say, What Paul told you was partially true. You do need to accept Jesus as your Savior to be saved. But before you do that, you must become a Jew to be saved. You have to do this before you accept Jesus. And part of becoming a Jew was this rite called circumcision. And that's why Paul says, watch out for the ones who are mutilating the flesh without reason. Next verse. He says, for we are the circumcision. Now here, he's taking it from the mutilators of the flesh to the spiritual concept that the circumcision is not a physical trait. It is an inward reaction to the people of God. Circumcised hearts dedicated to the Lord. We are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although, if you want to list resumes, I got one better than you. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I got more. Look what he says Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuted the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law blame us. Now we're going to leave that up for a second because what he basically says there is, I have everything you could ever want on a resume for someone who was going to earn their way to heaven by being a Jewish male. Because see, part of being a Jewish male is the fact that in his day and in our day, you can't determine where you're born. Anybody here choose where you're going to be born? Who your parents were going to be? No, right? You couldn't choose the house, the situation, the family that you were born into. And Paul says, in the things that I didn't have any control over, I was flawless. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exact day it was supposed to happen. I've been circumcised since then. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a part of this country, but not just this country, the good tribe. Now, if you're looking for someone that's a Hebrew, I am the Hebrew of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was part of the strictest group of people observing the law. Regarding zeal, do I have passion about the law? I persecuted the church because they were breaking the law, I thought. And because of righteousness blameless. Now Paul wouldn't say that he was perfect. What he means there is he had followed the ritual of forgiveness and sanctification according to the law as perfectly as you could. And when he had messed up, he had done the sacrifices he was supposed to do to make up for it. Paul says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, more than that, everything that was good in my life is a loss compared to Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Next verse. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. He goes on to say this, My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't think I've got there, I haven't arrived. But one thing I do forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now here's the thing. We lose the impact of Paul's writing because we're not a part of the generation and the culture of which he was a part. But Paul is saying that everything That they thought mattered in life is nothing because it is meaningless without Christ. And I want you to think for just a moment. If you were to list the things that our society considers to be important or good or make up a good resume, I'm talking about the best resume. So maybe you're born into an important family. And you don't take advantage of that or walk away from that, but you strive to do your best. And you uh, graduate at the top of your class in high school, blow out the ACT or the SAT, get a full ride scholarship to a school that is academically rigorous and has an unbelievable reputation. You graduate from that school, summa cum laude. Go on to graduate school, pass with flying colors, start working at a place. In the meantime, you've met a girl, met a guy, married, started a family, two kids, house. You work in charity organizations, you help people out in the community, you're a good person, you're involved in local politics, not too much, but enough to help people out. You receive wards from Rotary and Kiwanis for service to your people. And Paul says, all that is meaningless. In fact, he uses a word that would have been considered on the line of being vulgar in their context. Now some of your translations may say rubbish, loss, or "done." The proper, most proper translation of that is the word dung. And that's using the kindest possible translation of what it means. He says that all those awards, all those good things, community service, A's in college, summa cum laude, valedictorian of his class, all of that is a big pile of manure. He doesn't just say it's incidental or it's not, it's, it's not as important. He says it stinks to high heaven. Now, I know some of you are uncomfortable with me going down this path, but I didn't, the one that started it, that was Paul. I didn't know if I'd ever tell this illustration in this church. But a couple of weeks ago when we were at the ark, I told you that we went. Ava, I don't know if many of you all I mean, have y'all been around Ava. Ava is going to run the house by the time she's six, and she just says whatever comes to mind at the moment. Kind of like some of you, right? Just whatever's there, no filter, it just comes out. Um, and I may have told y'all that we went and they, they had animals out there, and I'll tell you that they had animals at the ark, and we... Saw them and there were some, it was cold. It was cold. It was like 35 degrees while we were there. And Ava and I, the only ones walking around the animals, and we saw the the kangaroos and they were all laid out like on top of each other and she thought they were dead and proceeded to tell everybody, you don't need to go over there. They're just dead kangaroos over there. (laughs) Okay. are you sleeping. But we went at the back. They had yaks. You don't know what a yak is? Four-legged animal. Horns. We're back there. And Ava looks out over them and there's a viewing area, you know, like in any zoo, there's a viewing area. And right in front of the viewing area, a yak has um, yak, all right? And it's pow. And it's even on a cold day, it is not pleasant to stand there. And Ava just looks at me and says, why did the yak think he could do that right there? She said, they need to get rid of that. I don't even want to be around it. That which I understand, right? Paul says, all the things in my life that I think are important. I know some of you cringe a little bit when he talked about the American dream. But the idea behind the American dream, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, make a good life for yourself, get a good family, get a house, and make sure that's the end goal, to retire to Florida, to collect seashells? Paul says it's a bunch of yak poop. So what does it look like when we are a people that are revived and not just survive in our lives? I'm going to be honest with you. i got about five things here, and we're probably not going to get through them all, so we're just going to get through what we can get through, all right? All of God's people said? Amen. I hear, I hear you. All right. First of all, if we want to be a people that live our lives and don't just survive, the first thing we have to see is that we must treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. We treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. When you look at what Paul lists about things that he has, those things we just mentioned, he talks about that many of the things that we treasure in life are listed in that list. Their family heritage. Where you're from. Who you're a part of. Social status. Biblical knowledge. He knew it all. He'd read it all. he memorized it. Religious activity. He was doing everything religiously that you could do. A moral lifestyle. He was living the life that God, he thought, had called him to live. By birth and by achievement, he had accomplished everything you could. The treasures that people longed for. If I told you that your son or your daughter was going to grow up with a great family heritage, with good social status, know the Bible, do lots of religious stuff, and live a moral lifestyle, you would say... Sign me up for that, most of you. And Paul says it's a bunch of yak poop compared to the only thing that matters. Christ. And here's what I'm afraid we're allowing to happen in the American churches of which we are a part. Is that we're allowing people to think that if they just grow up to be good girls and boys, that everything's going to be okay. If they just learn to be good business people and don't cheat people, they live just a moral lifestyle, making a mistake every now and then. But if we teach them to treasure the things the world treasures, we're doing a disservice and committing a crime against them. Our link together uh, Sunday night program, we're talking a lot about parenting and uh, one of the things that I know, I've shared this with you, one of the things that you know, is a lot of times when God is teaching you something, He tests you on that. And there have been a couple of challenges in parenting. As we've walked through how we ought to parent, looking at it in Scripture, God's like, alright, let's see what you're going to do with it. And there was a night a few months ago when uh, uh, Eli and I just had a good conversation. We don't, he's a teenager. We don't have those all the time. I'm not, not going to share the whole conversation because it's, it's family. But what came down to was kind of like it was a point when I needed to tell him what I wanted from him. And I am so thankful that the Lord in that moment watched over my mouth and my attitude and what was happening. And I just said, and this is one from me, I just said, Eli, if you do nothing else in your life, but you are passionately seeking Christ, then I'm happy. And he said, Dad, you don't care about my grades? So said, I didn't go that far. I said, but if you're doing the best you can, giving your all as unto Christ as it talks about, and you don't get into the best school, and you don't get the best degree, and you don't have a great job, But you are passionately pursuing Christ. That's all that matters. What's your standard of success for you? What's your standard of success for your kids? What's your standard of success for your grandkids? Because that has implications in how you make decisions. Eli starts high school next year. Grades start counting next year. Like No college is going to look back and go, what would you do in sixth grade? But they will say, what would you do freshman year? And as we begin to think towards that, it's a different time in our parenting. And as we evaluate and help him think through where he's going to choose to go to college in four years, four years from now, we're planning Eli's graduation. My prayer is that as a parent, I will guide him and help him to look for the place that will not just be or even may not be the place that is academically best for him. That is socially best for him. But that would help him find the place that is spiritually best for him. But you know where that starts for him to see it in his life? Because he has to see it in mind. Do I treasure Christ above all things? Jesus tells this story about a guy that is looking around one day and he finds treasure buried in a field. Some of you know that story, right? What does he do? He goes and sells everything he's got. Why? To buy the field with the treasure in it. The man comes to Jesus that is wealthy and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And what does Jesus say to the man that loves his wealth? He says, you must do what? Sell it all, give it to the poor and follow me. If any man would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. I'm afraid that we've made it too easy in American life to follow Jesus. And we think that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can be a part of the socially norm and acceptable and part of society and do all these things and that Christ is just a part of that process. Here's the only one we're going to cover. We're going to jump to the third one, Steve. If you want to live a life that matters, pursue Christ with obsessive passion. Paul says, that his goal in life, that what he does in life, is that with all of that being rubbish, with Christ being only treasure that he has, he says, I haven't attained it, I haven't reached it, but one thing I do in verse 13, forgetting what's behind, reaching towards what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the price promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I obsessively. Pursue Christ. Now here's the thing. He tells us that if we'll do that, there is reward. This isn't just giving your life to something that won't provide reward. You may not see it here. You may not see it now. But there is a wealth in following Christ. There is this eternal reward. This eternally uh, great moment when we will be given all that Christ has promised to us. And here's what I will tell you, I think Scripture teaches this, that what we know is that we are not saved by our works. It says in, in, uh, very clearly in the Bible that we are saved by faith, we're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you know what it also tells me in the Bible, that when we get to our eternal reward, it appears there will be levels for faithfulness to Him. Right? It says there'll be some that'll get there as if through fire. You know what that means? By the skin of your teeth. I've never seen anybody with skin on their teeth. Might be a frightening thing to see, right? The point is, if there's skin on our teeth, you can't see it. It's by the slimmest of margins. And so the reward for pursuing Christ may not be immediate, but it will be eternal. But here's the other reason. is because we serve a God who is infinitely good. And because of His infinite goodness and worth, He is worthy of our devotion to Him. We need a fresh understanding of the degree to which Christ has followed hard after us. The way that He pursued us. The way that He came for us. The way that He purchased us. I was reading a book this week and preparing for teaching at Union and it says there are two problems that everyone must come to grips with. One is the righteousness of God and two is the pride of man. That in the righteousness of God, He cannot overlook the pride of man and the sinfulness that we have. So something had to be done. And without the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I would have no reason for being. Our lives would all be in vain. It would all be rubbish. It would all be dung. But because of Christ's love for us, And the cross where He died and where He bled for your sins and for mine. Because of the resurrection from the grave when He snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. We have been reconciled with our God. Our God pursued us because He loved us so much. And when it feels as if we are giving up stuff to follow Jesus, we need to remember it is insignificant compared to what He gave up To come after us. We need a fresh understanding of the degree to which Christ has followed hard after us. And then we need a holy dissatisfaction with easygoing, half-hearted, mundane, just making it Christianity. A holy dissatisfaction with status quo. And it's just the way things are. And things will never change. And I don't know what you expect me to do, Pastor. Well, that's fine. Y'all do that if you want to, but I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna really get involved with that.
1: I'll ask you a question: How
0: many of you here today are still alive? It's good, right? I'm just checking. Every once in a while, I need to check. All right. If you're alive, it's not too late to passionately pursue Christ with everything you have. My son Luke's favorite song right now is a song called Till the Day I Die. And I wouldn't play it for you in here because some of you wouldn't be able to get over the beat to hear the message. So after 10 years, you know your audience, right? But the point is, it's got this guy that's in his mid-50s that's doing Christian rap, and people ask him, how long are you going to do this? Like, how, when are you going to hang it up? And he says, I'm going to serve the Lord till the day I die. Y'all have heard me say this. There is no such term as retirement from a Christian life. If you're alive, you need a fresh understanding of the, of the way that God pursues you. And you need a holy dissatisfaction with easygoing, half-hearted, mundane Christianity. And yet I know from Scripture that as I'm preaching that right now, it is flying over the heads of some of you in this group, and it will never make a difference in your life. Because you're not open and willing to let it. But for those of us that will, we'll see God move. It's later than you think. For all of us. Are you going to live a life of revival? You, know, you can't schedule it. You can't plan it. You can't work it. God has descended, but we can put ourselves in a position to receive it. Or are you going to spend the rest of your days just surviving? Let's pray
1: together.